All right, Jesse, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to look at Kenneth Cole's suitcases the same way ever again after last week. What are we talking about this week? This week, we're going to explore one of the most brutal and senseless crimes I've ever researched. This is the story of the brutal torture and murder of an innocent 12-year-old girl named Shanda Scherer. I'm Andy Cassette. I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hey, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about desire, betrayal, and how the relationships that are supposed to fill our lives with love can go so, so wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. So we've got an absolutely heartbreaking episode today, Andy. Oh, no. Yeah, this one's going to be a rough one. I very rarely shy away from disturbing content. So far, it has only happened once that I've started researching a case and then pulled it. I don't know if I told you about this. Rosemary and Fred West, they are a British couple. They were brutal, like serial killers of multiple women, like killed their own daughters, sexually raped sexually assaulted their own kids. It's oh my God. really, really horrifying. So I was pregnant. I was doing it for our maternity leave episode. And I was like, nope, not this time. <laughs> not right now. Do you think you'll want to revisit that? Maybe. I feel like once we get like a little further down, like we haven't done a, a killer couple in a while. And yeah. I think that every once in a while, it's good to have one of those crazy sadistic couples because they're fascinating, you know? So I probably will come back to it when I'm just a little bit more steeled and ready for it, you know? Yes. <laughs> Not emotionally unstable from lack of sleep. Exactly. It's too much too early. And this one was almost too much, today's story. Because of the people involved, both the victim and her killers were all really young girls. So there's also, you know, subject matter. So to give y'all a warning, this episode will include sexual abuse and torture of a minor. But I did decide ultimately to cover it because I think this is a prime example of how parents and communities can fail young people and how deadly the outcome can be. Okay. This is also actually listener recommended twice, once by Kim on Instagram, who was so sweet. She actually offered to send me the book that I ended up using for the primary text here. We used Cruel Sacrifice by Aphrodite Jones. And also Amanda on Facebook. And Amanda actually has a connection to the case. Her aunt went to school with Shanda and her uncle lived across the street from the family when the crime happened. Wow. Yeah. So this is personal for her. So thanks both of you guys. Thank you, Kim and Amanda, for suggesting this case. It's truly a terrible ride, but it is an important story, I think, and something I plan on talking to my daughter about, you know? If you guys have read Cruel Sacrifice, like I know Kim has, you'll know how awesome it is. It's like an amazingly meticulously researched and detailed story. So we'll be following Aphrodite Jones's narrative pretty much like how she did it throughout the book. So we're going to actually start for the first time ever on Love Murder with the entirety of the horrendous crime. And then we're going to go backwards and talk about the people involved. Okay. So are you ready for this? I mean, probably not, but 
Probably not emotionally, but we're going to do it anyway. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. Three teenage girls left Madison, Indiana on a bitterly cold January night in 1992. Lori, 17 years old, was behind the wheel and clearly the leader of her two younger lifelong friends, Hope and Tony, both 15. They traveled 50 miles to New Albany to pick up Lori's new friend, Melinda. Melinda and Lori couldn't be more different physically. Lori was more punky with close cropped hair and all black clothes, while 16-year-old Melinda looked like a conventional early 90s teen beauty queen. A bright smile, large, doe-like eyes, and a massive head of beautiful curls. Melinda invited all three inside, and while Tony and Hope took turns picking out clothes from Melinda's closet, they all listened to New Kids on the Block and Paula Abdul as they dressed and gossiped. Excited for a punk show later. And seeming for all the world like normal teenage girls doing normal teenage girl things. Until Melinda pulled out a knife and said, this is the knife I'm going to use. She told the girls, especially Hope and Tony, whom she had never met before, about this girl, this bitch, Shanda, who was a copycat of hers, who was too cute, who wore her jeans too tight and her makeup too thick. Shanda, the girl who was stealing Melinda's girlfriend, Amanda. Melinda seethed with jealousy as she outlined exactly how she was going to teach her rival a lesson. She was going to rough her up and terrorize the girl. Lori already knew the plan, and it wasn't long before Hope and Tony were on board, too. Melinda gave Lori Shanda's address and told Hope and Tony to approach Shanda at her front door. Shanda knew Melinda and would be scared to see her at the door, as Melinda had already threatened her. So Melinda told them to tell her that Amanda, their mutual paramour, told them to pick Shanda up so they could meet at a popular and creepy teenage hangout called the Witch's Castle. Shanda answered the door to the strange teenagers and said she couldn't go because her parents were still up, but to come back at midnight with Amanda. Then the girls went to a punk rock show. Tony and Hope got bored eventually and ended up hooking up with some teenage boys in the parking lot while they waited for Melinda and Lori. Awkward and nervous, Tony blurted out at some point, The two girls that we're with are planning on killing somebody tonight. Oof. Melinda had murder in mind, much more than just a simple fright when she went to pick up Shanda Cher. She knew it, Lori knew it, and Tony and Hope sure seemed to know it as well. The only person who didn't know the danger she was in that night when she got into the car was sweet, beautiful Shanda, who was only 12 years old. Jesus Christ. 12 12 you are a child I mean all of these people are children you know but at least the older ones are teenagers you know like 12 you are a baby yeah yeah the girls got a little lost on the way back to Shanda's finally arriving around 12 30 in the morning Shanda had begged her dad to let her friend Michelle stay the night around 11 that evening but the small house was full to the brim with people as it was so Steve her father said no sometime after 11 30 Michelle went home Ugh, I think that this whole thing could have been avoided if she had had even one friend with her, you know? Yeah, and why was the house full already? So he's remarried, and I think his, like, stepdaughter was visiting and another relative, and it was already a small house, and obviously Shanda was there. And so basically there was, like, people all over the place, and he's like, we've got, we've got like, a full house. Like, you got to send your little friend home, you And know? did he know that she was gay? No. Okay. So her parents had a thought because later her mother will find love letters from Amanda to Shanda. Okay. And before her death. And they do, like, I'll get into it later. 
they were never very clear about the full extent of their relationship because Shanda did deny that she was gay to her parents. Okay. So they weren't sure exactly if this was just like a crush situation. They didn't know if it ever got physical. Her parents were pretty much in the dark about what was really happening, though they had an inkling, you know? Okay. This time, Tony refused to go to Shanda's door, saying it was too cold. Melinda couldn't go for obvious reasons, so Lori and Hope went to lure Shanda into the car. Shanda was hesitant to go with the strange girls. She said she didn't know what she was wearing. Amanda wasn't with them. She didn't know these people, you know? Yeah. Hope convinced her, like, Hope was like, I'll go inside with you. We'll pick out a really cute outfit, and then we'll go, and you'll look good for Amanda, and we can have a party. Well, Hope and Shanda went inside to pick out a new outfit, Lori went to hide Melinda under a blanket in the back seat. They all anticipated a gruesome surprise for young Shanda. And so wait, 12 years old is still in like sixth grade, right? Like, are they even in the same school? I think that it it was, they were all in like junior high together. Well, Amanda and Shanda were in junior high together. Okay. I think the other girls are in the upper school. Okay. But I think it's a smallish town, so maybe they all run together. Okay. When Shanda entered the car, she asked about Amanda, whom she was told would be waiting for her at the witch's castle in Utica. So this is from um, Aphrodite Jones' book. She's describing what the witch's castle was. It's a place better known to Utica residents as Mistletoe Falls because of the mistletoe on the property. Once a nice home, today it's just the stone remains. Even in the daylight, sitting up on a wooded hillside in an isolated spot that faces the Ohio River, the place is spooky with its serpentine walls, footbridges, and burned-out fireplace. To the girls, it seemed even more ominous that night. Legend surrounding the castle says that it was once inhabited by nine witches who controlled the town of Utica, had been burned by townsfolk who tried to destroy the witches. At least, this is the legend Lori believed, and she was eager to talk about it with the others. In fact, Lori had taken Tony and Hope up to see it just the day before. It was one of the stops they made on the ride down to Melinda's. As they made their way, Lori turned the conversation toward Amanda, Shanda, and Melinda. Do you know Melinda? Hope asked. Yeah, said Shanda. Do you know that Amanda and Melinda broke up? Well, I think me and Amanda have been going for about four months now, Shanda said. At that signal, Melinda popped up from the back seat and slid the knife to Shanda's throat. Surprise, I guess you didn't expect me, Melinda said. Shanda immediately begged not to be hurt and began to cry as Melinda pressed the dull side of the knife against her throat. Oh my God. Psycho. She interrogated her about her relationship with Amanda, which Shanda tried to deny. At the witch's castle, the girls tied Shanda up and began to mock her hair and clothes, with Melinda threatening to cut off Shanda's beautiful hair. Lori set fire to a t-shirt with a yellow smiley face on it and taunted Shanda that that's what she would look like soon. Oh, my God. I mean, they're just horrifically abusing her at this point and, like, emotionally abusing her, scaring the crap out of her. Shanda only cried harder. Eventually, so many cars drove by the castle that it spooked the girls, and Lori suggested they move to a new location where they wouldn't be seen. They stopped at a gas station, covering Shanda with a blanket so she couldn't be seen, while she begged to go home to get some gas, and then ultimately they ended up back in Madison. Lori directed Hope, who was now driving, down a logging road into a desolate, deep patch of woods that was used as a garbage dump road. Everyone got out of the car and Tony hugged Shanda, saying she was sorry. So Tony says at this point she knows things are going off the rails. And 
she asked Melinda to take Shanda home. And Melinda is like, no, shut the fuck up. And like screams at Tony. And Tony said she was terrified of Melinda at this point. So she does nothing. Scared, Hope and Tony got in the back of the car and looked on uselessly as Lori and Melinda forced Shanda to strip down to her underwear. This is also January in Indiana. Jesus. And then began to beat a naked, shivering 12-year-old up. Melinda punched Shanda in the stomach while she begged her to stop, saying she would never, ever see Amanda again. She promised. But still, Melinda persisted, egged on by Lori, and slammed her knee into Shanda's face repeatedly. Jesus. Until Shanda's mouth was all ripped up because she had braces. Eventually, Lori and Melinda attempted to slice Shanda's throat with a knife, but it was too dull. At some point, Hope got out to sit on Shanda and help them to Tony's horror. Shanda struggled mightily while Lori attempted to choke her with her hands and then accepting a rope from Melinda, she strangled Shanda until she was unconscious. Wow. So these two girls are just sociopaths, psycho. They're sadistic. Yeah. And, you know, the next portion of the podcast, we'll get into their backgrounds. And it raises the question about mitigating evidence, whether it excuses anything. It like certainly explains things, but I don't think anything could excuse this behavior. No, I don't think so either, especially at that age. Like it's, yeah, this is different. This is not like a peer pressure situation about like smoking a bowl or even like kind of like being a mean girl. This is is like deep rooted, like you said, sadistic, evil, cruel. Rage. Yeah. 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 It's definitely something in their psyches. Then they placed Shanda's inert body in the trunk, believing she was dead, and drove to Lori's house. Panicking and in a hurry to get out of the woods, Hope hit a log or a bump, and it tore off the muffler. At Lori's, the girls drank Pepsi, and Hope and Tony laid in bed exhausted. All of a sudden, all four girls could hear Shanda screaming for her life from inside the car trunk while they're in the house. That's how loud she was screaming. Jesus, But unfortunately... No one heard her except for these girls. It's the middle of the night. I'll take care of it, Lori said, removing a small paring knife from her mother's kitchen. Shortly after Shanda's scream stopped and Lori came back covered with blood. Her autopsy report would show multiple, multiple stab wounds and lacerations. So at that point, some of these occurred. After washing off, Lori read Melinda's fortune using rune stones and suggested they all go out country cruising, which is essentially just driving around. By then, it was 2.30 in the morning, and Hope and Tony begged to stay in bed. Melinda agreed to go with her, so it was just Melinda and Lori now. Nervous that a nearby neighbor could hear Shanda's cries, Lori bought a Coke off their front porch. So this is very weird. Apparently, Lori's neighbor had a operational Coke machine on their front porch. Wow. Yeah, (laughs) which I've never heard about before, but I guess it was done in some places like in the country. Like you could like own and operate your own Coke machine. Yeah, go get a pop. And so she was worried that the neighbors had heard the screaming and they were still up at 2.30 in the morning. So she went to their door and said she needed change for the Coke machine. And they seemed totally normal to Lori, but the neighbors would later report that Lori seemed extremely upset. They decided to drive to Cannon and Shanda began to scream and kick. It was like she was, I mean, she was in full survival mode, this poor baby. She was trying to claw her way like into, you know, the cars where you can get into the back seat from the trunk. Yeah. Yeah. So she was trying to like get into the back seat and get out of the trunk. 
at this point, Lori pulls over in like a remote area and says, I'll make her be quiet. This next part comes directly from Cruel Sacrifice. And I think it was almost because I was having such a hard time (laughs) writing it. I was like, I'm just going to take this part directly from the book. Of course. Yeah. Ugh. Melinda was looking in the rear view mirror, watching Lori open the trunk. And then she saw Lori throwing punches and she heard Shanda screaming. There was a struggle going on between them. A lot of commotion. Melinda kept her foot on the pedal to drown it out. Suddenly, she heard a thump, and Lori slammed the trunk down and came running back inside the car. You should have felt it, Lori yelped as she banged a black tire tool down on the dashboard. It was so cool. I went like this, and I could feel her head caving in. Smell it, Lori said, and she stuck the tire tool up to Melinda's face. What's Lori's investment in this? Lori doesn't even know Shanda. She wanted she's to never she met her. She just wanted to kill someone because she's crazy. She absolutely 100% yeah. wanted to kill somebody. And that's what people testify to later. Like a lot of her friends were like, she always talked about wanting to kill somebody, wanting to burn somebody. You know, it was part of her persona. Ew. But like, I mean, when you're like a punky kid, you think somebody's just talking shit. You don't really think that they're going to kill somebody, you know? Yeah, but I feel like there's enough, like now there's enough. What year is this, by the way? This is 1992. Okay. I feel like now there's so much out there and so much violence from teenagers that we- Yeah, and psychology exposed and therapy Mm -hmm. and, you know, I I don't know. I feel like there's enough out there now that if someone's talking about that shit that a kid would say something to their parents or they would report it hopefully or they would talk to someone else about it. I mean, I feel like it makes sense in the 90s when there was a lot more taboo with all of those. Yes. There's a lot more stigma- And also Lori was also gay. I think that there was a lot of stigma about everything about their lifestyle, their sexuality. As we get into her background too, it was particularly taboo in her household because her mother was a fundamentalist Christian. Yeah. Yeah. So she probably has a bunch of anger about that too. And this is probably like a way for her to, wow. Okay. Yeah. So we'll, we'll go more in depth with specifically Melinda and Lori because they had the most troubled backgrounds, but also were the most sadistic, you know? Yeah, yeah. Smell it, Lori said, and she stuck the tire tool up to Melinda's face. That's sick. I don't want to smell it, Melinda protested. The tool was dripping with blood. Lori said she'd take over driving again, and they drove for a while. They were thinking about burning Shanda. They stopped the car again and both went back to the trunk to assess the situation. This is the part that's really hard for me. As the trunk opened, both girls became startled. Shanda sat straight up. Melinda could see the whites of Shanda's eyes. They rolled back up into her head. She was covered in blood. Her hair wasn't blonde anymore. It was red. Mommy, they heard her say as they closed the lid. Whoa. It's just the violence is completely shocking. And the fact that this baby girl is asking for her mother, I think really breaks my heart because all I could think about was her mother hearing this testimony at a hearing And being like, my baby needed me and I wasn't there. And she called for me. I mean, she couldn't do anything. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. You know, and also her mother wasn't even in custody of her when this happened. She was staying at her father's house. Yeah. So obviously there's nothing either of her parents could do. If kids are going to sneak out, they're going to sneak out. But it's just as a mom, I know that that would break me. Yeah. It makes me sick. Lori and Melinda would go back to the trunk to beat Shanda several more times. Every time they heard a noise, every time she yelped, every time she tried to yell, they went back, they would pull over, go back, beat her more times. 
They considered throwing her off a bridge, but headlights on the road spooked them. They eventually returned to Lori's house at daybreak, where the two teens bragged about how they had abused Chanda. I cannot believe she's still alive. Oh, I mean, fighting spirit in this little kittle that no one saved. And that's the thing that kills me is that, like, Tony and Hope are going to get in trouble what, for this as well. Yeah, what are they doing? They're just sleeping at home? Like, They're how are you not running to get an adult or running to the cops? Exactly. They were also, Lori's parents were in the home. And they have neighbors. Like, there's so many opportunities for you to stop this madness and save this girl's life. Yeah, like, there's so many other things that punky kids can be doing besides killing someone. Yeah, and really, Lori was the only one that was kind of alternative. Okay. Like, when I show you these girls' pictures, they look like totally normal middle schoolers or high schoolers, like, very 90s. But otherwise, you would never assume that they were capable of this atrocity, you know? Not that, like, being punky means you're capable of it. But it's like I'm saying they're not going around looking like Marilyn Manson here, you know? Yeah, yeah. Every time she screamed, we opened the trunk and hit her over the head with a tire tool, Lori told them laughing. We must have hit her like 60 times, Melinda bragged. Oh, my God. Their laughter woke Lori's mom up, who got into a fight with Lori about staying out too late, and she demanded that she bring all the girls home. So at this point, Lori tells her mom, we're going to go to McDonald's for breakfast, so I'm not going to be home right away after I drop them off. And then they drove out to the burn pile, which was an area that Lori knew. And they told Hope and Tony to get out and look at Shanda. They're like, you got to see her. She's totally like bloody. It's crazy. So Tony refused. Like at this point, she's shaking. She's terrified. So she was just crying. But she did sit in the front seat and rev the engine because they asked her to rev the engine so that the noise would drown out Shanda's screams if they opened the trunk. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, when they open it, Hope, who has at this point not been super involved in this, took a bottle of Windex out of the car and sprayed it on Shanda's wounds while saying, you're not looking so hot now, are you? Oh, my God. Yeah, they're all psychopaths. So the girls decided now that they were going to burn Shanda. After visiting a gas station to fill up an empty two-liter bottle of soda with gasoline, the girls went to a desolate hunting road in the middle of nowhere at Hope's suggestion. The girls carried Shanda out to the brush in a red blanket. At this point, I mean, she was so close to death that she could no longer speak, but she was clutching the blanket for dear life. Lori demanded Hope pour the gasoline on the 12-year-old child, and after some hesitation and Lori yelling at her, she did. Within seconds... Shanda, who had still been alive at this time, was engulfed in flames. Later on, none of the girls would admit to or identify the person who actually lit the match. So we don't know which one of them did it, but it doesn't matter because they were all doing it, you know? Yeah. Melinda actually turned back around. So they leave her on fire, get in their car, start driving away. And Melinda's like, actually, let's turn around. There's still some gasoline left in this bottle. And she goes back out and pours the rest of the gasoline on Shanda. Wow. When she returned, she was exultant, crowing about how happy she was that Shanda was dead. No one else said much. At this point, I don't know if it's really sinking in what they've done. I don't, I, I don't even know if they really get it. And then these heinous little bitches go to McDonald's for breakfast like nothing's a matter. Like how could you even eat? There's something severely wrong with them. Yes. And I guess Melinda was even like, eating a sausage and being like, ooh, look, it looks like Shanda. Oh, it was my burnt. God. Uh-huh. 
So after dropping off Tony and Hope, Lori's dad helped fix her muffler while Lori and Melinda cleaned out the car and attempted to hose the trunk free of blood and bodily debris. They're all just like tattling on each other essentially during the trial, yes. obviously, because that's how you know all this. Exactly. It's mostly Tony and Hope's account, but they also like basically for all of their hearings, they have all of the girls testify at each one. So you do get okay. everyone's account. And this was just Aphrodite Jones's like culmination of all of the testimony into okay. what was the most likely to be truthful about that night. Yeah. Okay. And even at, like, it starts early. Like, these girls can't keep a secret. They're teenage girls. Um, Tony even called a friend. Like, she had said she was staying at a different friend's house. So she called that friend to see if her mother had called. And she told that friend, we killed a girl. Like, right away from McDonald's. I mean, they were not keeping this to themselves. In a bragging way or in a guilty way? Tony was like, basically said they killed a girl. Tony didn't admit it. She was like, Melinda and Lori killed a girl. And I'm scared. So Tony was frightened by the situation. Yeah. It seemed like Melinda and Lori were more bragging about the situation. Okay. So immediately after that, the girls then went over to Hope's house because Hope was home alone and she was getting scared at this point. So Hope and Tony are, are now like getting frightened. And eventually all of the girls, not Tony, but Lori, Melinda, Hope, met up with Crystal, who was Melinda's best friend, and also Amanda. So the object of Melinda's affection and, you know, kind of the reason why this whole yeah. thing happened. Lori and Melinda bragged about what they had done at first. With Amanda there? Yeah, with Amanda there. Like, she's like, I told you I was going to kill her and I killed her. And basically, Melinda had been saying that she was going to hurt Shanda. So Crystal and Amanda thought that she was joking. And they're like, whatever, you're full of shit. Whatever, you didn't do anything. And so after that, they were like, no, we didn't clean the trunk out that well. They're still like, here, come look. You could see the blood in the trunk. And this is how we did it. And at that point, Amanda felt sick to her stomach and she demanded to be taken home. She was like, I don't want any part in this. Like, I'm sure she couldn't really contextualize what was actually going on. She just felt sick and needed to go home. Okay. By this time, Shanda's father, Steve, had awoken and not found his 12-year-old daughter at home. After calling several of her friends and going to her friend Michelle's house with no sign of her, he called her mother and the two of them reported Shanda missing to the police. Meanwhile, that morning, that same morning, just after 10 a.m., Don Foley and his brother Ralph made a gruesome discovery while hunting for quail. At first, the men thought it was a blow-up doll on the side of the road and got closer to inspect it. To their horror, it was the naked, burned corpse of a preteen with only underwear on and just the bottoms. Like, at one Ugh. point, they had taken her bra and Hope had even put it on. Oh, my God. And the underwear is pulled over to the side and she's like kind of like splayed out like they were trying to like make her look sexualized, exposed. So they immediately drove to Cannon and called the police who began to process the scene of the crime. The burned, bloodied and abused corpse of Shanda Sherer was tenderly removed from the scene and delivered to the coroner. The sight of the deformed child's corpse brought tears to one hardened detective's eyes. It was almost too much to bear. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine? Especially all like all these people have kids. Yeah. They probably have kids like the same age as Shanda. Yeah. And it just, it's a selfish and weird thought. But once you have kids, like your first thought of listening to anything like this or seeing it, I can imagine is, oh my God, that could be my kid, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. By that very evening, Tony Lawrence confessed all to the police in hysterics. Good. Basically, Hope and Tony had confessed everything to Hope's parents 
and then Hope's oh, parents Oh, could you brought, imagine? Oh, my God. It's a nightmare. I mean, Hope's dad talks about it, that they brought Hope and Tony over to Tony's house to talk to her parents about it, too. They were like, he was like, we have to talk to your parents as well. And how the dad was so furious. Tony's dad would just started yelling like, get out of my house, get out of my house, like to Tony, because he couldn't even process like what he was hearing and what his daughter had done, you know? Yeah. And then it sounds like after that, her parents were like, you have to go to the police and tell them everything right now. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the discovery of the body, the confession happens like within 12 hours of the crime, really. Crazy. So crazy. So she identifies Shanda as the victim, which they had already found the body. So they, you know, it was easy to put two and two together there. And she names Lori, Melinda, and Hope as her co-conspirators and told the authorities a timeline of events. Detectives were shocked that the carnage had been dealt by teenage girls and not some like burly male psychopathic killer because of the insane state of the corpse, yeah. you know? Yeah. You don't want to think that a couple 15-year-olds, a 17-year-old, and a 16-year-old are capable of that, you know? Yeah. A 17-year-old, though, is like pretty much an adult. It's true. I think also, though, this is fighting the stereotype of women being nonviolent, too. Yeah. Yeah. So almost immediately, arrest warrants were processed for the other girls, and Shanda's dental records were matched to those of her corpse, so it was confirmed. With this confirmation, the officers next had to deliver the grim news to her frantic parents, who at this point are just hoping she's, you know, out for a joyride or something, you know? Yeah. I swear to God, I'm locking Alden up until she's 22. I know. I was just going to say, do you think us, like, reporting these stories is going to help our daughters understand the dangers out there, or... (laughs) I wish I had known about this story. I really, really do. I don't think I realized, like, to me, and I don't know about with you, danger was always, like, a shadowy, like, creepy old man in a van, you know? Like, that was danger. Strangers are danger. I definitely don't think – I'd like to think I wouldn't have been able to get out of the house. I think my parents would have been on top of me at 12 years old, not being able to leave the house at 1230. Yeah. But I also would like to think I wouldn't have gone with teenage girls I didn't know. But I don't know. Maybe I would have. Maybe I would be like, these are the cool older girls. Maybe she did know of them or something. You know, like, I don't know. And I, I wish I had known this story. And I definitely want to tell Alden stories like this so she knows what human nature is capable and what peer pressure looks like. I mean, I was talking to this with Nathaniel, who was disgusted with this story. And he's like, I'm thinking of Alden as like avoiding being Shanda. But he's like, Also, why don't we teach her that if anything like this even started going down, even if it was just bullying, just like emotional abuse, she protects the person who's being abused. He's like, that's our responsibility as parents too, to be like, this isn't right and this needs to stop right now. Because if you don't stand up for the people who need to be protected, then this can happen. It can escalate to devastation. Yeah. I mean, what do you think as far as Echo? No, I agree. I think it's really important to have all those conversations. And I think that especially living in a big city, you know, there's so much anti-bullying efforts, you know, with LAD for LGBTQI young Mm -hmm. youth communities and everything like that. So I think it's a lot more spoken about now, which I'm really happy about. It shouldn't be spoken about after the fact, which is how it was spoken to me when I was a kid. It should be something that's ingrained in raising these kids. Yeah. And there's so many like picture books that you can read and have thoughtful discussions about. Yeah. You have to look at the curriculum. Like we're looking at preschool right now and and making sure that it's a very, you know, 
strong anti-bullying, you know, yep. atmosphere and that they they speak to the kids about this and that's how they guide everyone to peaceful resolution and respect, you know. But yeah, this is a huge cautionary tale. And I do think it's something we should talk to our kids about. Did you ever sneak out of your house? Only, only like twice to go down to the pond with okay. a neighbor boy. Like okay. it was like, it was very much like very innocent. Like we didn't even kiss. We like just like snuck out to do something and go like, you know, swimming. And I wasn't even skinny dipping. <laughs> like okay. it was so innocent. <laughs> I've never snuck out of the house ever. It never even was a thought ever. It's crazy. Well, we have these alarms now on our house that if you open a window or a door after the alarm is set, like the whole house goes up, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, can we set like an alarm like when they're teenagers? So like, we'll be like, guys, if you even try to like sneak open a window, we're going to know. Like, I was like, I feel like bad. We have to give them the security codes. They were like our members of the household, but I also want to make sure I don't sure think I you know have to until they're, they're 18. Right? Yeah. I'm like, I'm sorry. You're underage. You're not sneaking out to potentially get murdered. Or there could be a different code at nighttime than during the daytime. Yeah. Something like that. We have to figure it out. I mean, I'm so glad right now that they're little. Like it's so we're not sleeping. I'm potty training my oldest. It's like a whole like thing. It feels overwhelming, but it really is little people, little problems, big people, huge problems. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we got to soak this in. Plus they're like little enough that if they're doing something bad, you could just pick them up and remove them. Yeah. Okay. So I think that was a really good conversation and I'm glad because I really want to talk to you about that stuff. But let's talk about parents who did fail their children and what the hell happened in these girls' upbringing that made even like that a remote possibility, you know? So yeah, as you might have imagined, these girls had it rough growing up and the one who had it ostensibly the worst was Melinda. So let's start with her backstory. Melinda was born on October 28th, 1975 to Marjorie and Larry Loveless, the youngest of their three daughters. Larry, unfortunately, was a Vietnam vet, a pedophile, and a sadistic sex addict with a penchant for rape, child abuse, and humiliation. Oh, wow. All pre-war or after? All after. But I think he was, he had some PTSD, but I think he was a monster Prior. Okay. Yeah. Marjorie's no peach herself. She makes some not great choices, but she also married Larry when she was only 16 and a junior in high school. And she seems very much a victim of his as well. So shortly after their wedding, the abuse and exploitation of Marjorie, who had been a virgin when she met Larry, began. So he would, quote, make her dress like a slut and pick up other men and women to have sex with, as well as engage in other forms of group sex against her will. Okay. And if she refused, he would beat her. She also had no concept of what was normal sexually, she says, because being a virgin before Larry, yeah. he's like, this is just something that married couples do. And she felt extremely uncomfortable with it, but he would beat her if she didn't go along with it. And she also like was like, I guess I have to submit to my husband, you know? How much older was he than her? Four years. So she was 16 okay. and he was 20 when they got married. Okay. So this controlling, scary, and perverse behavior didn't stop when their daughters were born, sadly. Before Melinda was born, the couple had two other daughters, Michelle and Melissa. I knew they were all going to be named with an M. It's like Marjorie's the mom yeah. and then yeah. Michelle, Melissa, and Melinda. Yeah. Oof. 
Both girls relate being fondled and molested by Larry at exceedingly young ages, being beat up by him for crying as babies or having accidents during potty training. Wow. Larry even once shot a gun at seven-year-old Michelle, just narrowly missing the child. Just because it was Sunday or like – He just really didn't like his eldest daughter for some reason. Okay. Like most of the like emotional and physical abuse was like uh, targeted towards Michelle, unfortunately. Okay. Somehow Larry always managed to win Marjorie back, even though she knew his behavior wasn't healthy for her or their daughters. Her sister said it became almost a joke how many times Marjorie had gone to a lawyer to begin the divorce process only to call it off after a few weeks. So after Vietnam, Larry worked on the railroad, but he was laid off. He became a police officer after that, but was fired when he and his partner viciously attacked a black man that Larry believed had hit on Marjorie. So at least he got fired, but he obviously should have been thrown into prison for assault at this point. So Marjorie was horrified at his actions. Like she could not believe she apparently knew this guy in passing. They were acquaintances and they like waved at each other and he like lost his goddamn mind. So she was totally horrified about this and she threatened to leave again at this point after he gets fired. And he ended up holding her at gunpoint at that point and saying, if I can't have you, nobody can have you. You're dead. I will blow your brains out. So he's a real charmer. Also, after this, he gets a job as a postal service carrier. And he ends up being so lazy and terrible at his job that instead of delivering the mail, he like brings it all home and like goes through it and then just like burns it and doesn't deliver anyone's letters. Which is, isn't that like a federal offense? A federal crime. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah, which I don't know how he got away with that one because he didn't get arrested for that. So, yeah, after catching Larry in bed with a close friend of hers, Marjorie consented to an open marriage and went back to school to study to become a nurse. Due to her increased school and workload, the family hired Marjorie's 10-year-old niece, Teddy, to babysit Michelle, Melissa, and Melinda, which is crazy that a 10-year-old is watching three small children and a baby. Yeah, yep. It's an infant and two younger girls than 10. That's crazy. Well, Marjorie got married six years after being 10 years old. So, yeah. I mean, you're right. I can't imagine. Indiana in the 70s. Yeah, they don't give a shit. Jesus. So, Teddy would later testify in court that she was sexually abused and raped by Larry for the next four years. Jesus. From 10 to 14. From 10 to 14. Oh my and God. that she had witnessed the rapes and the molestation of the sisters as well, who are younger. Jesus. She says at some point, like he lined them up in the garage and raped them one by one. Oh my God. Yeah. Why is this guy not in jail? Well, we'll get into that later. So Michelle confirmed the abuse, both sexual, but also emotional and physical. She described a father who had no boundaries and would walk in on the girls in the shower who sexually harassed their young girlfriends to the point that they could never have any friends over and who stole and wore their underpants. Margie claimed not to know about the sexual abuse, stating only that she knew Larry to take naps with the girls and sleep in their rooms. Okay, gross. Super gross. And that's not only just with her own daughters, which like, first of all, if you know your husband like that and he's a monster, why would you let him be alone with your children? But also with his nieces. So she's like letting her husband that she knows is a violent sexual sadist go to nap time with her nieces as well. Like how were people not saying this is completely fucked up and inappropriate, you know? Yeah. 
she was like, well, he's so lazy. Everybody knew Larry was lazy. He loved taking naps. It just didn't occur to us. What? Jesus. Yeah. It's so fucked that they had three daughters. Ugh. I mean, it's terrible. I think, honestly, though, I think he would have sexually abused boys as well. Yeah. I don't think it was anything about gender. I think he liked the power and the control and the humiliation. And yeah. So, yeah, Teddy's sexual abuse went on until Larry burnt her hair with a flame of a lighter. And then to cover up the burned part, he cut her bald, according to Michelle. So at this point, the family stopped speaking because it was like Marjorie's sister's kids, Teddy and her other sister, Charlotte, who were also beginning to tell their mom, like, hey, we don't know how to tell you in what language, but something's wrong. He's doing things to us, you know? This is what I mean also by, like, communities. Like, it's at this point, it's great because Teddy's parents take her out of the situation. They never see the Lovelesses again, but they don't call child services. Nobody is reporting Larry. No one's, like, coming after him or saying something's wrong here, you know? Yeah, but I feel like it was better to like not speak about it back then. That's what they, they didn't want to get their kids involved. They didn't want to even hear what had happened honestly to their children because they didn't want to think about it, which is what I think. And they also are like thinking that if they just bury it and move forward, it's better than dealing with it and getting their children involved in, you know, something with the police where they have to testify and that might be re-traumatizing for them. But that's not, that's not the right way to handle it, obviously. No. Yeah, so Michelle detailed bone-chilling emotional and physical abuse as Larry's least favorite daughter. This is what she said in court and to Aphrodite Jones. It was Michelle whom he disliked, who he called bitch and whore. Countless times he locked her in the closet in her room for punishment. When she couldn't say her ABCs, she got locked in. When she asked him to leave her alone in the bathroom, she got locked in. Larry would leave Michelle locked up for hours at a time and knowing that she was afraid of the dark, he'd remove the light bulb in the closet before he locked the door. Sometimes she stayed in there for so long she'd have to urinate on the floor. She'd use her clothes to wipe it up and then throw the things out when she was free again. Other times as Michelle got older, he'd go to her bedroom window at night tapping on it to frighten her. Wow, psycho. Mm-hmm. After several suicide attempts on Margie's part and a health scare, Larry stopped drinking and seemed to clean up his act a little. So they stopped drinking, they got sober, they stopped with the extracurricular sex stuff, and the family moved into a condo furnished by the Graceland Baptist Church and committed themselves to the faith. Mm-hmm. Eventually, however, because this doesn't last long, Larry begins sexually harassing and even assaulting some of the women congregates. Like he got a job as like a part-time pastor. Like he was like a pastor in training. And while he's having these one-on-one meetings with women, he starts literally like this one woman testified to him like ripping buttons off her shirt, like coming at her so aggressively too. He's like, you know, you want it too. And she's like, no. And she's trying to get away from him and he's clawing at her clothing. Wow. So they get kicked out of the church and the community because of Larry And as Michelle and Melissa grew older, they began to fight back, especially as their father would steal their clothes and underwear. He, like, apparently loved cross-dressing. And he liked to do it, like, if they were going to have friends over, like, to really, like, mortify them and embarrass them. And the only one who was left who would tolerate him at this point was youngest daughter, Melinda, whose room he slept in at night until she was 14 years old. Wow. Yeah, and Melinda has never admitted to any sexual abuse. But I I think that's more because she can't admit it to herself, you know, or she doesn't want to say it out loud. 
but her cousin Tony said she witnessed it. And okay. Michelle and Melissa, her other sister, said it was happening. Honestly, I'm not even telling you like everything bad this guy did because this was like a full like 60 pages of the book was just how terrible Larry was. Like one time he violently raped Margie in the house with all the girls there and she was screaming and screaming and crying. And and so they all heard it. Another time they were leaving a bar and he was trying to leave with two women and she was trying to get him to come home with her. And he beat her so badly she ended up in the hospital. Wow. Yep. So when she was released from the hospital, she finally filed for divorce. But again, dropped the divorce and assault charges in less than a month when she took Larry back again. So the straw that finally broke the camel's back is when Larry took Melinda and her 12-year-old cousin Lisa, this is a different cousin, swimming. And while they were naked in the showers after swimming in the public pool, he stole their clothes and told them if they wanted to get them, they had to come out to the public pool area naked. Wow. So the cousin, of course, began to cry and freak out. And Melinda was forced to go out naked to recover their clothing. And she was just like mad. She was like, you're going to get in trouble. Like she was mad at like that he was going to get in trouble for what he did because there was like a lifeguard on duty, you know? Yep. And and she's like, you're just drunk, dad. Like, why are you doing this? And so she was like mad at him. So when they returned home, the 12-year-old cousin ran up to Marjorie and was hysterical and was crying and was talking about what he had done to them. And this seemed to break something in Marjorie. Like after all of the stuff she had been through, after all of like her suspicions about other things, she just kind of was like she had been chopping vegetables and she just completely broke finally. She says, before I knew what happened, I pointed the knife at him, Marjorie recalled. She chased Larry out the door with the kitchen knife. Melinda was hysterically crying. Michelle was begging Margie to calm down. All of them were just frantic. Neighbors were out watching the scene and Larry was screaming, she's going to kill me. I was just swinging it at him. I never really got close enough to stab him. I wanted to, Marjorie said. <sighs> I never stabbed anybody, so I don't really know how, but he blocked me with his arm. Well, you would have thought that I stabbed him in the heart. He fell to the ground. My God, she stabbed me. He was screaming, oh, my God, my, my God. God. <laughs> oh my God. Fuck this guy. She said, and traffic was stopping. Melinda rushed in the house and dialed 911. Soon, an ambulance arrived, as did the police. Before Larry was driven off, he made sure to tell the authorities that Marjorie should be arrested. The police had no grounds, however, because all the girls were eyewitnesses to the stabbing, and they reported that Larry had wound up cut because he tried to grab the knife away from her. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. I felt sorry for him. I seen a whole bunch of blood and I was crying and his thumb was hanging and I just, I was trying to help him and he said to just get away, Melinda recalled. I was chasing after him and yelling to do something and I was telling mom that I hated her and it was her fault. Margie felt so distraught over the scene. She went upstairs and made another suicide attempt. This oh my time God. she swallowed a bottle of Larry's tranquilizers. I wrote this letter apologizing because I felt guilty. I didn't know at the time how bad it was. I thought I hurt him real bad, Marjorie explained. I thought I cut his hand off or maybe or something. Who cares? Honestly? Yeah, should have cut his dick off. Yep. The girls found their mother out cold on the floor with their baby pictures strewn around her. Again, they called 911. These poor girls. Yeah, at least they have each other. I mean, that's Ugh. one of those situations where it's like, thank God they're siblings. Yeah. Oh my God. But can you imagine twice you have to call 911 twice in one day because your parent attacks another parent because your par the other parent did something so egregious and has been. And then the remaining parent 
tries to commit suicide and you have to save that again after multiple attempts. This is a nightmare situation. So after this event, the couple finally broke up for good and Larry moved to Florida where he married and divorced another woman fairly quickly. Melinda, who was totally And never went to jail. No. Later on, we'll get into it because of stuff that comes up during this case. Yeah. He does get charges raised against him. So we'll talk about what happens there at the end. Okay. So Melinda, of course, was totally brainwashed by her abusive father who had groomed her her whole life. And she hated her mother and she blamed Marjorie for the divorce and her father's exile from the family. When her mother's boyfriend moved in, Melinda began acting out and dating anyone who'd give her attention. Her first sexual experience with a boy apparently went terribly. She reported to her best friend, Crystal, that afterwards he treated her like scum. So she told Crystal after that that she was bisexual and that she was going to be pursuing girls now. So her cousin Lisa introduced her to Amanda and the two teenage girls hit it off right away. Yeah, so she was like her first female lover. Exactly. And Amanda was very like male presenting. Like she dressed in a more, you know, masculine traditionally way. masculine way yeah and she cut her hair short and she apparently did like some sort of martial arts like larry did and so melinda even said that amanda reminded her of her father okay so the two began to seriously date but the relationship did nothing to calm melinda's rage anger and emotional problems melinda attempted suicide by overdosing on b12 pills oh wow i didn't know you could do that I didn't know you could do that either. So I don't know if if you can or if this was just a cry for help, you know? Okay. Maybe you can. I mean, I guess if you do anything in large enough quantities, it's exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So Marjorie caught her while she was literally doing downing an entire bottle and she made her like throw them all back up. Yeah, because B12 is supposed to like make you feel better, I think. It's supposed to help with energy. Yeah, I don't know. But that's what she was doing. That summer, Melinda's emotional problems became even more pronounced. At the age of 15, she was still wetting the bed, watching cartoons, and playing with toys. Yeah. What is that? Regressing? Yeah, it's typical behavior of somebody who's been horrifically abused. So she was sexually extremely advanced, yet she functioned like a nine-year-old, according to Aphrodite Jones, like emotionally and mentally. She began to get emotionally abusive with Amanda and even getting like sadistically rough with her when the two had sex, mistreating the girl until she begged Melinda to stop. Yeah. So it's no wonder that Amanda's attention turned to sweet Shanda Sharer when they met at Hazelwood Junior High in August of 1991, inadvertently setting off a chain of events that would result in Shanda's horrific torture and murder. Let's talk about Shanda. Shanda was born on June 6, 1979, and was a bright and popular student who wanted to be a nurse when she grew up. She was described as easygoing and kind to all that knew her. Shanda's life wasn't going perfectly either. She was just having a really hard time in a very transitional period. Her mother was going through her third divorce, and she had moved to a new town, and she had a new school. Okay. So that's a hard time for a 12-year-old, and I think- Honestly, just being 12 is hard, let alone, you know, going through a lot of changes. Aphrodite Jones published this excerpt from Shanda's diary as she entered the new school. And I wanted to read it because to me, this just shows how young and innocent she was when you listen to her words, you know? Dear diary, I can't believe it, but it's true. It's time for a new school year. Let me tell you what I'm looking forward to the most and what I'm dreading the most. 
well, this year I'm going to a different school. I'm sort of scared I won't fit in because I heard that there are hoods, pretty girls, and all those guys. I wish my mom would understand that I don't want to be 12. I want to be 13. I wish I could tell people that I was 13 and my mom would go along with that, but I know how my mom is. She's not that kind of person, but I would love it if she would. I would work hard, but I'm already going to do that. I love my mom very much, but she doesn't understand how much I want to be 13 and have people spend the night on school nights and talk on the phone past 10 o'clock. Love, Shanda. Oh, my God. She's just a baby. Yeah. So Shanda did desperately want to be a teenager, like she says, and she sought out friendships with older kids and upperclassmen. And the vibrant, beautiful young girl received a lot of attention at Hazelwood from boys and girls alike. She was, she did look older than 12, so she okay. could really pull off the teenage look. She looked like almost as old as the other girls, you know? So one of the people that was immediately attracted to her was Amanda. And, you know, Amanda and Shanda, like I said, their relationship is never like out in the open. It's all pretty secret. Okay. And I don't really know what Shanda considered her sexuality at this point. I think that she was somebody who really liked getting to know people. I don't think she judged people based on their gender, obviously. And Amanda really came on to Shanda pretty hard. She okay. started like putting notes in her locker, giving her lots of compliments. Like she was really the aggressor in that relationship. And I think that the attention felt really nice to Shanda, you know? Of course. Yeah. She was desperately like looking to be accepted from older kids, you know? Eventually, Amanda wooed Shanda. However, Amanda never broke up with Melinda. So a love triangle was born. Oh, yeah. no. Especially when one part of the love triangle is a deeply emotionally unhealthy human being with violent tendencies. Shanda and Amanda exchanged tons of love notes that Shanda's mother, Jackie, later found and turned over for evidence. So Aphrodite Jones publishes several of the notes in her book, and it's clear that the relationship between Amanda and Shanda was secretive in nature, like I said, mostly due to Amanda's ongoing relationship with Melinda, but also because of their sexuality. We're still in the early 90s. Most people are not out at this point, not in middle yeah. school, you know? Yeah. By October, Melinda had discovered the relationship and Amanda warned Shanda she was scared of what Melinda would do. So like Amanda had already broken up with Melinda kind of, but kept going back to her. So it's very confusing about when technically these girls are together, when they're not. Shortly before Shanda's death, Amanda really was trying to kind of end things with Melinda and turn okay. her attention towards Shanda, which probably heightened everything. Yeah. But here's an example of a couple of the notes that were written by Amanda in October that illustrate that she knew Melinda was going to react violently to okay. this. Shanda, hey, honey. Yes, I do love you, but it just feels like Melinda has got me in some kind of trance. I don't know how to get out of it. I'm scared. If I try to get out, something bad will happen. I'm scared to death. Love you, Amanda. And then a different note around the same time period. Shanda, thanks for the note. Hey, I don't think I would ever tell Melinda we are going out together. She would probably kill you. Yes, I love you a lot, Shanda, honey. We'll talk after school. Love you. Wow. Yeah. So she was aware. This is another situation where Lori had a general anger inside of her and potential desire to kill. But, I mean, Amanda knew that Melinda had threatened Shanda's life. Yeah. 
So the love triangle reached a boiling point when Amanda told Melinda she wouldn't be attending a school dance, and then she ended up going with Shanda instead. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Melinda, who was triggered by abandonment because of her father and who had obviously severe emotional problems, became consumed with rage and a desire for revenge. There was some testimony in one of the hearings later on, too, that at one point, Melinda considered killing Amanda and that Amanda wasn't allowed to leave the house that night and therefore she avoided death. Like it could have been Amanda as well. Wow. Mm -hmm. Shortly after the dance, Shanda's mother discovered several of the love letters and in an effort to nip her daughter's lesbian relationship in the bud, she transferred Shanda to a religious private school called Our Lady of Perpetual Health. So at this point in the book, she says something was going on. Obviously, this girl was older. And so she kind of thought maybe this girl was just coming on to Shanda. Shanda never admitted to having a physical relationship with Amanda and denied that it was romantic in nature, even though these notes were clearly romantic, you know? Yeah. The notes could be romantic, though, and they could still not have a physical. 100%. I don't really know the extent of the physical relationship between Shanda and Amanda at all. So, yeah, still Shanda continued seeing Amanda, and Amanda ping-ponged back and forth between Shanda and Melinda. Melinda was growing frustrated with Amanda and her ongoing home situation, which ostensibly was getting better. I mean, her stepfather had moved in. He was supposed to be like a better male role model, and he wasn't abusive in any way. She just hated him. She hated her mom for moving on. She hated the guy for not being her dad. She hated somebody telling her what she could and could not do that wasn't her parent, you know? Yeah. So she began at this point to hang with a new crowd, and this was like a rougher crowd. And I don't even know if they were really like rough kids. It's more like they were kids that felt like they were outcasts for whatever reason. Uh, You know, a few of them were gay. They presented as like more punky at this time. Like, you know, they were dressing as outcasts because they felt like outcasts, you know? Yep. So it was people that more like embraced that type of alternative look. And so she started running with this crowd over in Louisville. And this is where she met Lori. So Lori was born Mary Laureen Tackett on October 5th, 1974 to an ex-convict factory worker father and an aggressively devout fundamentalist Christian mother. Lori was described as a withdrawn child, likely stemming from sexual abuse incidents that had occurred when she was five and 12 years old. So I think that these were family friends type situation, you know, somebody you distantly they trusted. As if that wasn't enough, her mother was deeply conservative and Lori was rebelling because she wanted Lori to basically wear like Little House on the Prairie dresses all the time. Which I like very in right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that look, that look will never be my look. I feel like, I feel like you and Darcy can pull it off really well. I don't, I don't think that's my look. <laughs> it's too boho for me, but I like, it's yeah. blown my mind seeing some of the fashion girls, what they're wearing right now. Crazy. Yeah. Some Laura Ashley shit. Yeah. Yeah. So that's basically what her mom wanted her to wear. And she wanted to wear jeans. So at one point she comes out wearing jeans, or I think her mom found out she was wearing jeans and she starts to savagely beat her. Wow. And try to strangle her. Wow. Yeah. And she also was like the type of fundamentalist Christian that doesn't believe in going to the doctor, like that God will heal. Uh, okay. Yeah. So apparently Lori had some sort of jaw disorder from like her teeth coming in too soon or something that was like causing deep, deep, painful migraine headaches. Yeah. And she would not allow her to go see a doctor or a dentist about it. So and 
even if she was like really sick, they said like only one time when she had a really bad ear infection was she allowed to see a doctor. Oh, God. Yeah. So after the strangulation incident, Lori ran to a neighbor's house, not to like tell on her mom, but she just was like, I have to get away from my mom because my mom's going to kill me. and I just need yeah. to let her cool down. And so, of course, that neighbor, thankfully, at least one adult in the situation is doing the right thing, called the Indiana State Department of Public Welfare to investigate child abuse at the Tackett home. Good. When interviewed, Lori's mother actually admitted to the event. She admitted to strangling her daughter. She said that she had prayed to God about it and it would never happen again. Now, at this point, Lori's like, I don't want to make a big deal about this. I'll just go home. I mean, there's like the alternative is foster care, you know? Yeah. So she's like, whatever, just let me go home. So they allowed Lori to return home on the condition that social services would make several unannounced visits over the next six months to determine Lori's safety, which seems like a good idea. Probably better take Lori out of the situation altogether, but if she wants to go back, I guess. How old was she? I think she was like, in her early teens, okay. like sometime between like 12 and 14 at this point. Lori's parents at this point relaxed their harsh punishments. And I think it's because they knew that somebody could be coming to look in at this point. They're like, of course, we've given up on this. We've tried everything. She's just going to do her. They let her cut her hair short. She started experimenting with alternative looks and makeup. She became fascinated with the occult, supernatural entities and witchcraft. Yeah. Pretty soon after her 15th birthday, Lori became a part of a secret teen society called the Quayan Society that determined the humans were not of God, but of extraterrestrials. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. So she's like <laughs> original QAnon over here. The society frequently used Ouija boards and Lori began channeling or attempting to convince the others that she was a medium. And uh, one of her frequent spirit guests was a vampire named Deanna who wanted to take her to the dark side. Oh. At this point, all of her friends were like, you knew she was full of shit. Like, they didn't actually believe she was channeling. (laughs) Deanna. Deanna, the ancient vampire. (laughs) Yeah, you should have gone with a different name. So Lori's performance at school suffered greatly at this time, and most of her childhood school friends had abandoned her during her, like, punk spiritual transformation. All of her old friends, except for Hope Rippy. So Hope, Lori, and Tony Lawrence had all been friends since they were very little. Hope was born in June of 1976, the fourth of four children. Hope was described as a timid child and a gentle peacemaker amongst her siblings. She worshipped her engineer father, Carl, and was devastated when she was seven and her parents split up. She moved to Michigan with her mother, Gloria, where she never quite fit in. A few years later, her wishes came true when her parents reunited and the family moved back to Indiana when Hope was wow. in seventh grade. Yeah, she got her uh, parent trap. It actually worked. Wow. Yeah, and they, they did say actually that their daughter being so miserable about their breakup kind of inspired them to get over their differences and make it work for the wow the betterment of their child. That's impressive. It was then that she reconnected with Lori and Tony and the trio acted like no time had passed at all. Carl found Lori's punk appearance distasteful, but he basically kind of got soft about Lori later on because the girls were using a Ouija board and Lori's mother like lost her goddamn mind when she found out they had been using a Ouija board. Of course, satanic. Yeah, it's satanic. So she came over and she's like, you have to burn the board. And she demanded that they allow this other household, this other girl's parents, have somebody from her church come to exercise the house. And so wow. the guy's like, um, okay, lady, I'll burn the board. That's fine. I'm not going to let them play with it anymore. I didn't even know she had it. 
we can burn the board, but you're not letting anyone in my house. You're not doing shit to my house. Oh my God. Yeah. So after that interaction with her mother, he's like, okay, Lori obviously has a screwed up home life. Maybe like our family could be a good influence on her rather than like worrying about is Lori a bad influence on Hope, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And Hope's like real best friend, however, was Tony Lawrence, who was born on Valentine's Day of 1976, the daughter of a boilermaker, which I guess is like a fancy welder. Okay. And was slightly more affluent than the other girls. Like Hope, Tony was the baby of the family and considered introverted. She enjoyed writing poetry, drawing, and reading. Like Melinda and Lori, Tony had also been sexually abused. She had been molested by a family member at nine years old. Oh, my God. I mean, could these girls have worse upbringings, oh, you know? God. Worse upbringings. Ugh. But also, it's not just that. She also had suffered being raped by a boy when she was only in eighth grade. And she told her parents. And she and her family attempted to press charges on the young man. But all the police would do was issue an order that her rapist would have to stay more than 50 feet away from her at all times. Wow. Wow. No punishment whatsoever. So it's like she went through all of that trauma and reporting it and then got nowhere. Wow. Yeah. So obviously, Tony became deeply depressed after this incident and she started becoming wildly self-destructive. She started engaging in drug use and unprotected sex with multiple partners. Tony also got into self-mutilation, a hobby shared by both Hope and Lori. All three girls making small cuts with razors on their arms during school and while hanging out together. One night while Lori was sleeping over at Tony's, Lori went too far and she gave herself a four-inch laceration that was deep enough to cut a tendon. So Lori was rushed to the hospital where she received stitches and was placed under psychiatric care. The psychiatrist found that she complained of time loss, not remembering large parts of her childhood or even recent events, depression, and of course, family dysfunction. Lori was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and eventually released. No longer relating to her peers and feeling alienated, Lori dropped out of high school in September of 1991. Now you know where all of the girls' heads were at leading up to that terrible night. Yeah. After the murder and Tony's confession, police went to Melinda's house where they arrested Melinda and Lori. Hope went to the police on her own volition, and the bulk of the evidence in this case would end up being Tony and Hope's testimony primarily. Yeah, okay. But despite Tony and Hope spilling all, it would be clear after the autopsy that the girls were not admitting all that they had done. The autopsy revealed, of course, multiple lacerations to the head, neck, and legs, the stab marks, ligature marks on the wrist, the fracture to the skull, and evidence of the tool, you know, hitting her, and as well burns over her entire body with clumps of hair missing, and evidence that pointed to the fact that Shanda had been burned alive. Smoke inhalation would become the cause of death. She died from breathing in the smoke that was her body on fire. What's more is that numerous lacerations were found in the anus. What? Authorities would later believe that Shanda was sexually assaulted using the tire tool while she was oh, still alive. My God. Multiple times. To this day, none of the four girls have ever copped to perpetrating this crime nor witnessing it. Well, that makes me think, though, that it was, according to all their testimonies, it had to have been either Melinda or Lori, 100%. 
and Teddy, the cousin, says yeah. that Larry raped them all vaginally and anally too. Yeah. Yeah. So that might be a learned behavior. Yeah. I bet they did it together and that's why they just never – They never turned rolled on each on other. Rolled on each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's also too horrifying to even like say. Like no. they just dummied up because you'd have yeah. to admit what a fucking monster you are, you know? Yeah. Even if you witnessed the other person doing it, you're still a fucking monster. Oh, yeah. And that's why none of them can admit that it happened because they can't say that you stood by and watched that. Yeah. And watched that occur without stopping it. You are a monster. Yeah. So as the arrests and the gruesome murder began to hit the media, many teenage informants came forward to give testimony. A 13-year-old friend of Amanda's said that a few days prior to the murder, Melinda told Amanda very clearly they were on um, like a three-way phone call that she intended to kill Shanda and she would be doing it soon. Okay. So 100% Amanda knew about this. Other people knew that Melinda had said this and threatened. Trial dates were immediately set for Melinda and Lori, who at 16 and 17 would be tried as adults. Good. Good. Mm -hmm. I think so too. The authorities struggled to figure out what to do with Tony and Hope, who were 15 and cooperating with authorities. They would ultimately be given plea deals for their testimonies against Melinda and Lori. They still serve time, but they get, you know, all the girls actually end up taking pleas. I'll get into it now. When Lori Tackett was arrested, she was taken to a psych ward where she claimed to have multiple personality disorder, amongst other things like being psychic, experiencing blackouts, including convenient amnesia of the night of the murder. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And a lifelong history of hallucinations. The team of psychiatrists found her self-diagnosis to be total bullshit. They said the way she was like pretending to move in and out of personalities clearly indicated she did not suffer from multiple personalities. Unbelievable. Yeah. So they were like, this is clearly an attempt to get out of jail or get a lesser sentence based on your mental health, you know? So yeah, they were not buying what she was selling. Meanwhile, bunkmates of Melinda's reported that she relished relating the crime and would even laugh describing how Shanda died. She seemed remorseless, almost proud of her part in the murder and torture. Wow. Due to the horrific nature of the crimes, the DA filed the charges against Melinda and Lori with death penalty specifications, meaning if convicted, the two young teens could be facing lethal injection. This caused the terrified girls to also take a plea deal. Basically, the DA said he didn't really want to try them for the death penalty, but at the time they weren't taking plea deals and they really did not want to have a media circus trial. Okay. So he filed the death penalty charges like- To scare them. To scare them into taking the deal, essentially. But what is there still to confess if the other girls confessed everything? There's no reason to do it other than to avoid a trial. Okay. And, like, the cost of a trial. And, like, obviously this was going to be a huge, huge case, you know, that was covered by a lot of people. So I think they were just trying to avoid that. Okay. Yeah, it's also, it's not fun. You don't want to try, like, massively screwed up teenage girls, especially if you have the death penalty on the line. I know he put the death penalty on the line, but, like, this would not not look good. I mean, think about a DA having to come across, like, questioning these girls, you know, it just, it's not a good look. So I I understand why they did it. So the two girls, Melinda and Lori were eventually charged with murder, arson, and criminal confinement. And the death penalty was obviously taken off the table and they would be facing a maximum of 30 to 60 years in prison. That's it. That's it. I don't think that's enough. No, no. 
So Shanda's parents approved of the death penalty being taken off the table, but they did hope that each girl would be given the maximum sentence. Shanda's mom said, the death penalty is too easy, Jackie Vaught told the Courier-Journal. I want them to go up for a very long time. I want this to haunt them every night. I think it's gone on long enough. It needs to be over with. Shanda needs to rest, and so do we. Wow. I cannot believe they, like, only have to do 30 to 60 years. So all of the girls took plea deals. There was no trials. However, there were sentencing hearings. So we're going to talk about those really briefly. Cool. In exchange for her testimony against the other girls, Tony Lawrence was only charged with criminal confinement, which I think is like kidnapping, and was sentenced to the maximum penalty of 20 years. Wow. Due to good behavior, Tony only served nine years and was released on December 14th, 2000. Okay. So Hope Rippey was sentenced to the max of 60 years with 10 years. Yeah, they went hard for Hope. But she got 10 years suspended for mitigating circumstances of her age. And then through the appeal process, Hope's sentence was reduced to 35 years. And in the end, she only ended up serving 15 total and being released in 2006. Okay. Yep. And so Melinda and Lori actually had their sentencing hearings back to back. And both of their defense attorneys attempted to secure lighter punishments due to the overwhelming evidence of sexual and physical abuse as well as mental illness. The testimony to prove the abuse had occurred was particularly brutal in Melinda's case, especially when her cousin Teddy Barber testified to the ongoing rapes she and the Loveless girls endured at the hands of Larry Loveless. She described all of the atrocities I mentioned before and that another favorite move of Larry's would be to rape the girls with a loaded gun which is barbaric and terrifying. Oh my God. Yeah, with the barrel of the gun. So despite all of this mitigating evidence, it was very hard to have sympathy for these monsters who had tortured, sexually assaulted, and then set a 12-year-old child on fire, which like to Nathaniel made this point, he's like, horrific things happen to people every day and they don't torture and kill. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and this is what Shanda's mom had to say after the hearing where there was like some particularly brutal testimony about what Melinda had potentially gone through. There is no excuse, no defense for our child's death, Vaught told reporters. It was senseless and unforgivable. And her ex-husband said, to me, this was just another day of testimony. I cannot see why this would give anybody any reason to do it. I felt nothing today. I feel no sympathy, no remorse, Vaught added. I'm sorry, but they can bring out any defense. It's not good enough. My daughter is dead. What my daughter suffered through that night could not compare to what they suffered to in their lives. Yeah. Because they're still alive. They're still alive. They have a chance to, you know, get healthy and turn their lives around. And Shandon will never have that chance. Yeah. So apparently the judge felt similarly because on January 4th, 1993, Judge Todd sentenced both Melinda and Lori to the max of 60 years behind bars. Oh, God. So some good did come from Melinda's hearing. However, Larry Loveless was arrested in February of 1993 on charges of rape, sodomy, and sexually battery. Thank God. Thank God. I mean, we could say he is almost responsible for all of this happening. Yeah. Completely, you know? So Larry the monster was locked up for two years while awaiting trial. Unfortunately... Did he die? Do no, I wish. Oh. Ugh. Due to the fucking statute of limitations on sexual assault and battery in Indiana, he was ended up like free of all charges except for one, and he was released on time served in June of 
Wow. There shouldn't be a statute of limitations on rape. No. Like what? If you don't, if somebody doesn't report it in five years, it didn't happen? Yeah, but it's the Midwest in the 90s. Like, ugh. So while in prison, Melinda devoted herself to a program that trained shelter dogs to be service pets to people with disabilities, hoping to put some good back into the world after all she had done. In 2012, Shanda's mother, Jackie, donated a dog named Angel to Loveless to train. Jackie said she received some criticism over the decision, but said, it's my choice to make. She's my child. If you don't let good things come from bad things, nothing gets better. And I know what my child would want. Any child would want this. Also, I got this information from like all of the aftermath of the trial came from Wikipedia, which actually had quite a robust profile on this case. Um, yeah, and Jackie can do whatever the fuck she wants. And she says that she would like to donate a dog every year in honor of Shanda. And I guess there's a documentary out there entitled Charlie's Scars that captured Jackie's decision to allow Melinda to train a dog in Shanda's name. But I also think it's like some form of forgiveness to be like, I'm going to work with you on something that's for the greater good, which is of course training service dogs. But I also think it's kind of badass to be like, every year I'm also going to remind you of what you did. Yep. Yep. Totally. And whatever she needs to do to heal, like fuck anyone saying that she shouldn't be doing that. 100%. It's, <laughs> she's the one who lost a child. She gets to decide how she copes with it. Yeah. It's definitely, it's, it's sad. So Jackie ended up and Shanda's sister ended up on a 2011 episode of the Dr. Phil show where Lori Tackett appeared from prison and she expressed deep remorse for the crime. She claims the case was one of peer pressure that spiraled way out of control. She apologized to Shanda's family and told them every year that she gets older, she is more and more haunted by what she has done and every January it destroys her. She says that she'll never get over it and she's going to live with this for the rest of her life. Yeah. And Shanda's sister was like, good. I hope it destroys her. January, what a horrible month to be reminded of that every fucking year. Uh, terrible time of year. Yeah. Lori was released in January of 2018 after serving nearly 26 years in prison. And Melinda was released in September of 2019 after serving 27 years to be paroled in Kentucky. All four of the girls are out now. Wow. But honestly, did Melinda express, I mean, I guess she's doing the dog training thing. So maybe she is remorseful, but if they. She's expressed remorse. I think all four of them have. Okay. I also don't know how much I mean, it didn't seem like she was pretty, like, right right afterwards when she was still a teenager, it seemed like she was bragging about it. But she also might have been, like, she was in jail. Maybe she was trying to, like, make herself look tough, you know? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's a very, very hard case because they were so young and their brains weren't formed. And obviously there was a lot of abuse in their histories. <sighs> but at the same time, I, I, I don't know if you should be part of society if you can do something like that. I know it's hard because obviously feel horrible for what happened to them as babies too, but that doesn't make it like Shonda's parents said that doesn't make it excusable. Yeah. And that's what like, you know, I talked to Nathaniel about this. I was like, there's things that can explain behavior. It can explain how this was possible, but it doesn't excuse it. Mm -hmm. Nothing could excuse this. No, that's absolutely horrible. So yeah, that's the completely tragic story of Shanda Share. And I hope, you know, we can also share that story with our growing kids and 
promote anti-bullying. Promote anti-bullying and, you know, being in touch with your your kiddos and and knowing where they are and loving them and accepting them. And, and locking them in a house and putting a tracking device in their body. <laughs> yes, 100% that. <laughs> oh, God, I don't even know what the world is going to look like when our babies are teenagers. So, hey, here's to all of you good parents out there who are fighting the fight every day. Yeah. Andy and I give you so much credit and respect. If you want to give us any advice, DM us. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think we're going to close on that one. Parents are heroes. Good ones, that is. And, uh, you know, keep each other safe. And thanks for listening. We love you. We love you. Bye. Bye.